everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass, and it's time for It's All About Food. It's all about food. Uh, can you? How long can you go without food? That's how important it is. I know I've spoken about fasts before. It just came to my mind. How long can you go without food? I know that I can go at least three weeks without food because I did a three-week water-only fast. Um, probably about 15 years ago or so, and it was a fascinating experience. But I'm not saying that we should go without food. Unfortunately, there are many people who do go without food, and they're not doing it for any intentional reason. They're hungry, and there are many people who get very little food. And uh, we talk a lot about food on this program. I love talking about delicious food, healthy food, and I know that I'm very fortunate and privileged to have access to an abundance of healthy, delicious food, and I know that there are many that don't. I'm aware of that when uh, I encourage you to eat healthy, delicious food and to enjoy the recipes that we put together at responsibleeatingandliving.com, but I always keep in mind that there are those that don't have this privilege. And it's it's always fascinating to think every time we sit down to eat, and I know most of us don't do this, and I don't do it enough, to really think about where our food comes from. It's a fascinating journey to take, and I repeat suggesting to go through this because it's something that we can easily take for granted, and it's fascinating. Hello, Jonathan, are you there? Hi, yes, I'm here. Great. Yes, good. So I'm glad that uh, I got you. I was just talking uh, while waiting for you, and, and I need to give you the appropriate introduction, uh, how important it is to think about where our food comes from. And it's so easy to take for granted when we have access to healthy, delicious food all the time, for those of us who do, to not realize the long chain, the long journey, all the people and non-human animals that are involved in getting the food on our plate to our mouths. Yes, indeed. I like to say tune in live and tune in love. That's what we do during this program. Very nice. Uh, I imagine that you're extremely busy today because your new book, What a Fish Knows, was released today. Congratulations. Thank you. It's nice to, after four years of work, it's nice to have it finally actually out in the, fully in the public eye. Now, just so, so my listeners know, Jonathan Balcombe is my guest, and he's the director of Animal Sentience at the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy and the author of four previous books, including Second Nature and Pleasurable Kingdom. And he has a website, jonathanbalcombe.com. And you can follow him at Twitter at Pumilla66, P-U-M-I-L-L-A-66. Um, I've, read, I've read your book, and it's been an absolute pleasure to read it. Uh, every page brings magic and wonder, really exposes us to the greater, it's like there's another universe here on our own planet, which is the ocean something we know so little about and we're just starting to discover. And you've shared so much of the little that we know today about the life underwater. Well, I can tell you, Karen, one of the delights of writing this book was the, the, the discoveries that came along the way. Uh, I wrote the book for two primary reasons. One of the key reasons was that there's so much great science on what 
on fish's inner lives now, but most of it is it never makes it into the public eye. It's buried away in scholarly journals. And once I started working on it, there were just so many more discoveries as I went along that it was very exciting to to you know discover a new study of um, individual recognition or social behavior or sexual behavior or personalities in fishes and uh, know that I would be able to work that into my book and that I was going to be putting together something that, that, that people could see and just hopefully just open their eyes and realize just how rich these animals' lives are and how, how we've under, underestimated them. Well, let's put the, the idea of eating fish aside for a moment. I want you know I am vegan and I promote a plant-based diet and we talk about eating non-human animals and what that does to the planet uh, all the time on this program. But putting that aside, why is it that a lot of this research has been unheard of and doesn't get a lot of media attention? Because I really think people would love to hear this information. It's fascinating. Well, I guess it sort of works in my favor that it has been shrouded in a bit of mystery. Um, it's a great question, and I don't have an immediate answer because the, the press, uh, certainly these days, you see more and more really cool animal stuff in the news. I mean, I can mention two studies that have come across my desk in the last week on, on fishes themselves. One is um, a couple of days ago I saw a new published study, which is pretty sad and tragic, that farmed salmon become severely depressed. They, uh, it's very common. They, they, there's these dropout fish. They, they sort of give up. They just, they just, they just float to the surface and they're listless and they're, they, they don't eat and they, they, the, the, the other fishes are like three times as big and they basically wither and die. And the scientists measured the cortisol levels in these fishes. That's a, that's a hormone associated with stress. Um, and, and you could say misery. And the cortisol levels were, were way higher in these in these dropouts. These these um, de- apparently depressed fish. They showed all the hallmarks behaviorally and physiologically of what we would define as depression in mammals. And I do write about emotions in the book. And um, so anyway, that's one study. The other study that just came to light just to, just today uh, is a new study of archer fishes, which are really cool. And I de- de- dedicate several pages of my book to them. Uh, they're called archer fishes because they hunt by, well, they hunt, they, they catch food in the water, but they also, if the opportunity arises, they'll squirt water out of their mouths into the air and, and actually pick off flying insects or insects perched on, on a leaf um, with great accuracy. And they learn this by observing other fishes doing this. So it's pretty remarkable, but they've just been found to recognize human faces. It frankly doesn't surprise me, Karen, that they can do this because as I describe in my book, individ- fishes are very good at in- recognizing individuals in their society. They they have their shoalmates, they have their pref- preferred individuals to hang out with, um, and uh, they're very visual in many cases. And so, not surprisingly to me, that they can recognize a, a human face and distinguish that face from another human face. There are too many things that we have assumed as humans that we have assumed as as we think being the most intelligent things around um, that other living species cannot do all the wonderful things that we can do. And it's really a very ignorant assumption and an arrogant assumption. And uh, every page in your book talks about the amazing things uh, that we've taken for granted about the life underwater. Uh, You just mentioned recognizing 
faces, you've shown and the studies have shown that fish can recognize their own, their community, as well as when they're in a tank, they can recognize some of us. Uh, um, I've just been fascinated by this book. Um, and, and the fact that fish use tools. Do you want me to elaborate on that? I would love you to, because that's one of the things that, that's been exploding these days with land animals using tools, because that was supposed to be the evidence that we were so superior to everything. I want to pricey um, that that by just saying that that absolutely there's a huge amount to celebrate about humans. I mean, we are a remarkable species. We have a number of characteristics that I think are fairly unique to us. But we have to realize that other creatures also have their wonderful characteristics, and they also have their uniquenesses, if you like. Um, in fact, I, I think we should celebrate the fact that fishes are so vastly different from us, and yet they, they, are, they are cousins. I deliberately use the word cousins in the tub t- subtitle of the book to provoke, but also to remind readers that they are members of the vertebrate clan. They are direct links to us. I, I, I was about to say ancestors. I actually don't like that word because evolution is ongoing. It's not as if fishes stopped evolving when the first lobe fins ancestor of mammals and birds and terrestrial animals crawled out of the water many hundred, a couple of hundred million years ago. No, they've continued to evolve and flourish. And in fact, we are in, in an age of fishes. The age of mammals is is long past. The, the fishes are the ones who are the most diverse today. But let me speak about tool use. It's something that we don't generally associate with with fishes, and I try to present a number of I present a number of things in the book that are that are you know might raise eyebrows when you consider that fishes actually can do these things. But uh, fishes have the disadvantages of of not having grasping limbs and fingers and such, and so they're limited in in the kinds of tool use they might be able to express. But in fact, they can use their mouths. They can also blow water with, well, I already mentioned the archer fishes. They can blow water with their mouths, shoot water out of their mouths and catch things. That's a form of tool use. But they can also uh, push water with their mouths or gills, and they can uncover mollusks that way. So an example of tool use would be um, a trigger fish or um, a, a, a ras, and there's some other species, tusk fishes, who will deliberately blow water either with their mouths or their gill covers to uncover the sand and cover, uncover a mollusk and then pick the animal up with their mouths and then swim very deliberately to a, a rock that they will use as an anvil to with a series of well-coordinated, well-timed um, head flicks and releases, which is not easily done. They are able to smash the unfortunate mollusk against the rock and to get at the uh, soft insides. And it's a very deliberate sort of behavior. You can watch YouTube videos of this, and it's been published, and there's other examples of tool use in fishes that have been published now. And uh, it, it seems to involve planning. I, I present it as such in the book that the fish is actually thinking ahead, knows exactly what he or she is doing, knows the, the, out, the ultimate goal, but there are several steps to get there. And so it's more than just tool use. Uh, it's planning and um, wherewithal and awareness and consciousness and all those other things that we often forget that fishes have. What I learned in your book about community or all of the cultures that are going on underwater and how the fish interact with the, their same species and different species, um, Some it was, it was all wonderful to read, but at the same time, uh, I was a little frustrated to know that the same negative traits that we have 
in our own human communities, you can see them underwater as well. There's positive traits and not so positive traits. Indeed, and that's I think another part of the beauty of the lives of fishes is that they are mirrors to us and vice versa. They are fallible. They fall for the same kinds of optical illusions that we do, for instance, and I present some of those in the book. They are sometimes mean to each other. There's certainly predation that goes on. Um, I do like to, having written a couple of books on animal pleasure, I do also often like to see animal behavior through a pleasurable lens, and there's plenty of that. And I do describe, for instance, cleaning stations on reefs where client fishes line up to wait their turn to be serviced by cleaners of various species who pluck over them, removing parasites and, and sloughing skin and algae and that sort of thing. And uh, it's a it's a classic mutualism. The cleaner gets some food. And the client fish gets a spa treatment, and they appear to love it. They sometimes change color. They uh, will pause while the cleaner fish takes a break from cleaning and actually just gratuitously gives them some mm, caresses with their pectoral fins, which probably feels good. And they're not doing that for nothing because they want to curry favor with the clients because they want those clients to come back. And so there's there's clear clear behaviors that are built on the capacity to feel pleasure. But as you said in your question, I mean, it's Machiavellian under there. In fact, the cleaner's, the cleaner's client relationship is complicated because you get cheaters, you get cleaners who do not such a good job, and careful studies have shown that cleaners are very well aware of who's watching them and how many other client potential clients are watching them. And just as you might expect a better job from a better service from, say, a barber who has a number of people waiting for to be getting a haircut later, um, then if there's no one there watching or waiting, um, you, you get better treatment from cleaner fishes when they're being watched by clients. And why is that? Well, clients are actually forming image scores and keeping accounts of the cleaner's performance. I'm not making any of this up. It's all, desc- it's all described in published literature and uh, because they can go somewhere else. They can go to a different cleaner. And so um, and cl- cleaners are more likely to nip off a little mode of mucus from the client if no one's watching them because there's less of a cost, because they're not going to lose potential future clients if there's no audience. So this is the kind of Machiavellianism, and that's the term that a biologist used, another biologist in one of his papers that I thought was a very appropriate term. Term. It's um, There's pluses and minuses, there's, there's awareness of others, there's reputations at stake, and not everybody always behaves well. Now, a lot of this information has come from studying fishes in ways that cause them harm or cause them pain. And, and there's, there's some sort of, I don't want to use the word balance, but um, we learn a lot, but at the same time, it's quite cruel. Yeah, I often get asked by audience members when I speak about animals that um, I ask, people ask me, you know, I notice you cite some studies that are not very nice. And um, my response to that is, indeed, I... I wouldn't really be keen to do those studies myself. In fact, I'm a co-editor of a new journal called Animal Sentience in which we encourage authors to be mindful of not harming animals in their studies and using positive reinforcement and rewards rather than punishment like, like starvation to motivate behaviors and that sort of thing and to release animals back in the wild if they took them captive, but preferably to observe them in the wild, this sort of thing. Um, but nevertheless... Given that other people have taken pains to do studies and they've caused maybe caused uh, some fishes to suffer or even die in some cases, 
I feel that it honors fish more, the fishes more. And if, if I, if I bring those studies to light, not as an endorsement, but to hopefully use the information gleaned from those studies to advance the cause so that uh, in future we'll have a more enlightened view of these creatures and be less inclined to do harmful things to them. So it's a little bit, um, you know, it's a bit tricky, but uh, I, that's just my view. It's kind of a utilitarian view in that case. Um, and that's the, and I think, um, but there's a lot of studies that I also cite that are not harmful. And the, and the, the people who did the study took, took, uh, went to lengths to make sure they didn't harm the fishes. And there's, and a growing number of scientists now report that they are returning their creatures back to the wild. And I'm very impressed to see that because I can tell you that's still a rarity in science that they even report on it, whether they do it or not. Well, the analogy is doing tests on non-human land animals and then using that information to understand human health and and all issues around humans as well. And there's that question of whether to use that information or not. And many people do because it's available. Not that we necessarily, some of us, uh, encourage that sort of thing. Yes. Um, okay. So what what are how can we study What's going on underwater without harming the life there? What are there some organizations that are doing that? Uh, there's a new organization called Fish Feel. Which is oh, we just talked to Mary Finelli a few weeks ago. Good, yeah. So it's nice to see that there's a, there's some organizations in Europe that are working to try to uh, change laws about about fishes and uh, particularly in in reference to commercial fishing, which is uh, something that's going to be going on for some time yet, but it's um, deeply disturbing what is done to the animals who are caught uh, in that industry. So, uh, And also the fish farming, the aquaculture, which has been the, the fastest-growing um, food production sector in, in on the planet for the last number of years. And um, there, there are changes in some practices going on. These are very much welfare reforms. We're not talking about someone acknowledging that fishes have rights and that they deserve to be left alone or not exploited at all. Uh, nevertheless, I do believe in an imperfect world that we need to work for changes on all fronts at all times. And so welfare changes are better than no changes at all in my books. So, um, it's, it's important that we keep plugging ahead. And, and one of the, things I try to do in the book is I juxtapose the science of what we now know that reveals these creatures as individuals with rich lives, with not just biology, but biographies, and um, juxtapose that with the really, frankly, appalling treatment that we meet out on them, not because we're cruel, but because we're indifferent in, in the production of uh, commercial fishing and re recreational fishing in many cases. It's not nice the way we treat them. It's really nasty. Uh, being hooked through the face, often through the eye, uh, inadvertently, and then hauled up by your own body weight to the surface, and then, you know, depending on what situation is, worse things happen to you after that. It's uh, it's pretty awful. If we were doing that to mammals on land, there would be, a, I think, quite an, an outcry. And, of course, at our worst, we do do horrible things to mammals as well. In any event, it's my hope that people will see that uh, these animals are aware, they're alert, they're individuals, they have personalities, they, they have lives worth living for them. And that because of that, we have to start including them in our circle of moral concern. We must 
in, we, we, because we're a moral creature, creature, we're stuck with that. We, we, we have a sense of ethics. We have, we know what right and wrong is. And right now, the way we treat them is wrong. And so we need to take that into consideration in our future behavior. I, I'm not exactly sure how to describe how you do it, but with your writing, you make this horrible information very readable. It has to be, you know, if, if people are disgusted or put off, they're going to put the book down and they're going to go no further. I mean, I can't speak for everybody. We're, we're a very mixed bag. Mm-hmm. So just as, just as the fishes are a very mixed bag, so are we. But I want to reach as many people as I can. And it's important that there be levity. It's important there be joy in the reading. And of course, if you're writing about the way we treat fishes in commercial fishing, it isn't exactly joyous, but I try to keep it flowing and tell stories as well as relate the science because people have to be motivated to want to change this. This world is a wonderful world and we have to make it better. And it's not about, oh, it's all so horrible and let's just throw our hands up and give up. It's about we can do so much better and we've shown that we can do that in the past. And uh, so that's why it's so important to keep a positive outlook on this stuff. You mentioned the movie Finding Nemo a number of times in the book, and you do have a lot of humor in the book, which I uh, enjoyed very much. I love this film, Finding Nemo, and one of my favorite lines in the film is, fish are your friends, not food. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Are there some things that are... That we, that are beneficial from this film. You mentioned a number of times that they took a lot of liberties, but, um, somehow I think just being able to see, even though it's a cartoon, the possibility that the life under the water can work together helps us understand that a little more. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I've seen the film and I, I, and, and our book is, this book is strategically timed to coincide with the release of the, the sequel, Finding Dory, which is coming out in about 10 days time. And, um, you know, I, I like to think that, um, that these films can improve our attitudes towards, in this case, fishes. Uh, of course, there are harms as well. Uh, there's already a campaign with Humane Society International and uh, Tank Watch, for instance, to encourage people or discourage them from going and actually finding Dory, which is to say, going to a pet shop and buying blue mm. tangs, which are featured in the in the in the film, because blue tangs are very vulnerable in their natural habitats. So that most of them are in the aquarium trade are taken from the wild. And it's grim. The aquarium trade, there's a lot of mortality. The shipment conditions are often terrible. The conditions, the methods they catch them is are really bad. So that's the negative side. But I do like to think that these films also, because they personalize fishes so much, that, that in juxtaposition with, say, hopefully with my book, that people can see that actually they are actually quite a bit like us in many ways. And in a vacuum, they may not make that connection, but it, with, with the sort of information that I hope people will, will get from the book, um, those who actually read the book and watch the film, that they will, that the film actually will help to advance attitudes and make people more sensitive and concerned with these creatures. Uh, other than reading your book, which I think everyone should do, honestly, um, what can people be doing now to help underwater life? which really affects all life, because without them, we can't survive either. Yeah, well, uh, I think it's important to, to meet people where they are and to get them moving forward. So if people are, say, pescatarians, they're, they're vegetarians, but they but except that they still eat fishes, which are definitely animals, um, stop eating fishes would be a, a great step. 
if they are um, fishermen, then uh, consider stopping fishing or taking up bird watching. Or if you're going to keep fishing, replace your barbed hooks with barbless hooks, or take your barbed hooks and crimp them with a with a with a pliers set of pliers so that they are no longer barbed. Um, so there are steps anywhere along the spectrum that people can take to make things better for fishes. Well, Jonathan Balcom, thank you for joining me on It's All About Food and for writing this book, What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. Congratulations on your release of this book. Thanks for having me, Karen. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, well, you know, I read a lot of books on this program, and uh, sometimes I interview authors after reading their book, and I don't say a lot about it. I'm going to say that this one is one of my favorites, and uh, I really recommend going out and reading it. It's a lovely, lovely read.